0: Gotta
1: keep hey, everybody, this is Bob Goodwin, and welcome to another episode of Career Club Live. Uh, if you're not familiar with Career Club, we're using proven sales and marketing methods to help folks find a career that matters to them. Uh, please check us out at career.club. Uh, today, we're really pleased to have joining us today Chris Hurley. Chris is the VP of Category Strategy and Shopper Marketing for Pernod Ricard. So without further ado, Chris, welcome. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I am doing excellent. Thank you. Where do we find you today, Chris?
0: Today I'm in sunny, exotic Cincinnati, Ohio. Where else would you rather be in early March? All
1: the cool kids are in Cincinnati, Ohio. Come on. Yeah. So March, I mean, what do we have? 70 degrees. Now it's 40 degrees. So we'll figure it out soon enough. Just what did is, is I say? If you don't like the weather in Cincinnati, just wait an hour. It'll change. Yes, that is exactly true. And I think it's going to be 30 degrees on Sunday and it was 70 degrees last Sunday. So, <sighs> I don't that. so anyway, Sorry. it's great to have you. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. So as is our want, we uh, usually do a little icebreaker section to help folks get to know you a little bit better. So without uh, wasting any more time, let's jump into that. So where were you born and raised, Chris? Um, I was actually born in
0: New York City, actually in the Bronx, um, and when I was a child, moved out of the Bronx and out to Queens, and um, yeah. so grew up as a city boy, went to high school in Manhattan, so uh, true New York City all the way through co- up to college.
1: Awesome, it sounds like Cincinnati's moderated your accent a little bit. It, it has. It depends
0: on on how late the night is and, you know, my my the, my mood, if you will, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get a little upset, <laughs> The New York City okay. comes out.
1: <laughs> and there you go, got it.
0: And then, uh, where did you go to school, Chris? I went to Notre Dame in, in South Bend, Indiana. So
1: wow, now that's not Manhattan anymore, is it? Nope, a little less to do, but it was it was a lot of
0: fun, uh, great yeah. education, great time, met some great people, and kind of how I got in this business too. So worked out awesome.
1: well. Yeah, Notre Dame's a great school, of course. And then, just a little bit about your family, Chris. Um, I've got a wife. Uh, for, believe it not, 30 years. We got married when I was 12.
0: Um, we've got three kids, uh, two boys and a girl. My son is at Penn Law School. My other son is in business. This business kind of, he's in corporate sales, corporate partnerships for Philadelphia Flyers. My youngest is a daughter at uh, University of Dayton, studying psychology.
1: Go Flyers. Go on. You have two Flyers still. up have two Flyers. Six exactly six right. Months. That's cool. And then uh, just a little bit, if you could sort of paint the scene of your career arc and how you landed at Pernod.
0: Yeah. So um, at, at Notre Dame, I met, I met a, really one of my best friends, DJ Romano. Uh, their parents owned a largest Gallo distributorship, non-Gallo owned in the country mm-hmm. called Romano Brothers Beverage Company. And um, started out there as a distributor. Um, as a merchandiser, sales rep, you know, carrying a feather duster and, and, a, and a box coat of my pocket, you know, one of those situations where you got a degree from Notre Dame and you're rolling around retail stores, dusting bottles and cutting boxes of Carla Rossi open and building up wine displays. Um, you know, dad was kind of wondering how I'm going to pay those school loans off doing that, but mm-hmm. a great way to learn the business. Um, and they were a great company Romano brothers and getting that gal sales training really was a great lift for me for my entire career. So I did that for, um, for a few years, went to work for the winery. Mm. And then um, after uh, being at the winery for a few years, I, um, I moved to, to Iowa to run the state of Iowa for Gallo and then moved to Indy with Gallo still. And then Dr. Pepper came a call it. at the time. They were Dr. Pepper seven up. Yep. Um, now they're there. I believe current Dr. Pepper, but in between yep. there were other names, but great company, great brands. I uh, was there for nine years in a variety of category management sales mm-hmm. roles. Um, then Campbell's soup came a call it. So it went from uh, sugar water to, to sodium water. Um, and, Great company, again, up in Jersey. And um, again, a variety of roles, Shopper Insights, Catman, Strategy, Sales. I uh, got to check a lot of boxes with a lot of great people. Uh, did about a nine-year stint there. And then Pernod Ricard knocked and said, hey, how would you like to come back here, uh, run the Wine and Champagne National Accounts team? And um, so I did that for a few years. <clears throat> COVID hit. And uh, the game completely changed, as you know. We realized we need some certain centers of excellence on premise, was struggling and we need more insights. And how does a shopper evolve into all this? So, so, we built out a shopper marketing team. And, uh, and they asked me to build it out uh, from scratch, which is a pretty exciting opportunity. And I've done that now for the last two and a half years.
1: No, that's awesome. We're going to really look forward to diving into your expertise on that in just a minute. Um, last question, and I'm going to guess the picture behind you might. Uh, Telegraph the answer, but what do we? What do we find you doing when you're not at work? What do you like? I I,
0: I do enjoy golfing, <clears throat> so like everybody, I'm a self-deprecating golfer. You know, that's what we all have to say. I'm not very good, uh, but in truth, I'm actually not very good. But I do love golfing. Uh, I played fairly regularly, a lot of customer golf back in the Carolinas, um, and then my kids became of age where <clears throat> I wanted to coach them a b- bit. So when I wasn't traveling, I was coaching them. Gave it up for about ten years and. Now back at it, uh, got to help anybody who's around me when I'm swinging. But um, I like to golf, um, love sports, uh, played a lot of sports when I was a kid, anything I could play. Um, and then, like I said, I really enjoyed coaching. And now due to various injuries and, and onsetting arthritis, I think it's best my sports is limited to sitting on the couch and watching people who know what they're doing, do it. So, <laughs>
1: Okay, so then two questions. Favorite golf course is what? <laughs> Um, I mean, Augusta
0: is, okay. is it to me? I just, there's so much magic there and I actually got to go there twice with some customers and it, it, it exceeded all my expectations. That's both times. And your favorite golfer, uh, my favorite golfer. Um, it, this is a, a big controversial. It always had been Phil Mickelson, uh, because I always him was kind of, kind of a man of the people. And I maybe drink that Kool-Aid a little bit, yep. but I just love that. He never, never could get over the hump, never get over the And then he did get over the hump in a big way with some clutch putts and, and so I really love that the way he got the crowd riled up. I got to follow him because it was very rainy in Augusta. So I was like six feet from him for 18 holes, and he was chatting us up the entire time. Um, so I was like, well, this guy is actually really as he's advertised. But then, you know, recently there's some things going on that are coming out that made me have a second guessing who I'm going to go for. So I don't know. Maybe me look at Justin Day or somebody like that. So, but, uh, but Phil is the guy for like 15 years I really rooted
1: hard for. Him. There you go. All right. So, yeah. And I thought you could say live golf, but, um, the, oh, that's that's one of the reasons
0: why Phil's got some issues in my, in my
1: world. So, so let's kind of jump into the talking shop part of this. Yes. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar with Pernod Ricard uh, brands, well, I'm sure they're familiar with the brands they may not know the company name. What are some of the, the top brands people would know that you guys have?
0: Yeah, yeah people like Pernod Ricard, they, they don't know, really know what that is, but they are actually two pretty big brands, Pernod and Ricard, uh, globally. But here in the U.S., they're hard to find. Uh, obviously it's Pernod Ricard is obviously the um, the partnership of two individuals yeah. named Pernod and Ricard. But here in America, you know it best as Jameson, Irish Whiskey, Absolute Vodka, Kalua Malibu Rum. We've got several great bourbons, you know, Rabbit Hole. We've got Jefferson's. Um, we've got a good tequila lineup Altos navion And we re- recently made, made a big acquisition with CodeGo. Mm-hmm. Um kill So so a lot of brands like that. Plus, we have a great wine and champagne portfolio with GH Mom and Parisian Way and Campo Viejo. So so those are some that may be a little less known, uh, but some some of my favorites. And then uh at the upfront, people say what do you work for? I usually with Jameson Absolute and Malibu It'd be
1: like, ah, got it. So, got it. There you go. So jam. If you can't remember anything yeah. else, jam, right? You're right. Jameson absolute um, Malibu I was I was got it. There you go. So uh the the kind of the core part that we're going to talk about today, because you introduced me to a term a few months ago that I wasn't familiar with called omnipop. And so I was wondering if you could just first of all just kind of at a high level explain what that is. Yeah. And then maybe we'll break it down a little bit.
0: Yeah. So um omnipop, it's basically at Perno, we look at the uh the shopping journey in well, there's many facets to it, but you have pre-pop, which is before they walk in the store. So pop is obviously point of purchase. So what? how do you interact with the shopper before they walk in the store? At pop is what happens at that point of purchase. And then post-pop is how you engage the shopper after the point of purchase. The alcohol beverage shopper is very, very fickle. Um, in fact, churn rate is about two-thirds. So even some of our biggest, best brands, they might not come back and do a repurchase for a year. 30% repeat rate, essentially. So, um, so that's pr- that tells you that people that we've got some loyalists. they're going to roll in. They can say, I want my Jameson. This is what I drink every month and nothing's going to change me. But, but the majority of folks experiment, try to do things and a lot of switchability. So in order to build that brand buyer relationship, we need to hit them on every step of the journey. So, mm-hmm. so pre-pop is how we talk to them digitally via the media, getting their attention, getting on their radar, initial brand awareness, and then at pop, Shopper marketing, which is essentially what my team does, um, we're our, we're charged with making sure that we're converting those shoppers who are ready to buy our brands, but also getting the attention to those who are unsure or thinking about buying one of the competitors.
1: Right. So,
0: um, so you know, obviously, displays, shelf talkers, stances in the front of the eye, in front of the store, but also, almost two thirds of people now are making decisions at pop based on mobile devices. In fact, sixty three percent. So knowing that there's a whole digital component component that's involved. So at, uh, at pop or shopper marketing is not just physical. It's not just the shelf talkers. It's mm-hmm. not just the displays. It's the digital elements. How do we, how do we hit them with the right reviews, with the right coupons? You know, they are to be doing some price comps. So how do we make sure we're engaging that shopper in the aisle? And then the post pop to convert. And then the post pop is, ah, I bought my, my drink. Now, how did we make sure they feel good about that? Right. How do we get them to come back so they don't switch to one of the other guys? Um, that's the post puppy. So it's a big circle. Um, and so it's pre, at and post. And uh, it takes a lot of a lot of folks to make that thing happen. Uh,
1: so, of- so, so let's break this down a little bit. That's super interesting. Um, so with the churn, just so we all have an agreement on what we mean by that, I'm going back to the vodka category. So I might have bought absolute the last time I bought vodka. And What you're saying is is uh, what two thirds of the time I'm going back to the category, but I'm going to switch brands,
0: and maybe not even switch brands, maybe just switch to another subcategory. So you see this, especially high in the bourbons, right? Which probably is not a surprise. You got folks experimenting, trying new things. You know, we've got a a terrific. We've got a Jeffersons is is a terrific bourbon, and they have got a very loyal set of shoppers. But because it's so unique and we've got some great flights, you got people coming in, they try it, and then literally they'll try something else the next time they're in the store. Um, And so churn rate, essentially, the way we talk about it is within a given year, how many repeat purchasers do you have? So Mm -hmm. Irish whiskey, typically in the mid-30s. And then that means two thirds are, are opting out. So again, it's, it's 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 a brand thing. Sometimes it's also sometimes it's a subcategory thing. You know, especially you see now seltzers and all these other things, and yeah. you know, pre made cocktails. Uh, these are things. Hey, let me try that instead. So it's really about how many options there are out there today versus just ten years ago, and it lends and how much more education there is. It lends itself to a more experimental consumer.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of um, uh, quick serve restaurants where just varieties actually, or just restaurants in general, where variety is actually one of the appeals of the category. So, just a little bit of higher retention or less churn in your language, right, is actually very significant because we get that one extra trip, that one extra purchase that, that can make all the difference, particularly in a longer sales cycle, depends on how long, right? that bottle of alcohol is sitting in the cabinet. Yep, right? exactly. It, it might get a little dusty or maybe it gets consumed very quickly, depends. Right. But just a little bit of improvement is a lot of difference in sales. Yeah,
0: and because of that, you know, our, our strategy is really to try to recruit more households. So, so you know, it depends on the category. In I know in soup, we always wanted to have them drink more soup, right? We really, we want to be responsible. We want to encourage people to drink that Jameson faster, right? That's not really a noble objective. Um, So what we (laughs) we say is, hey, you know, drink that Jameson, drink it responsibly. And when you're ready for more, come back for Jameson. But we want to recruit more households. So when you think about like even Applebee's, quick serve restaurant, their menu, it's just monstrous. I mean, you open the thing out, it's it's like a novel, right? Where do we even begin? which can be a little bit much sometimes, but if you're looking for variety, you're going to go to Applebee's because you can get 38 different types of things. Mm-hmm. And so with our team, and that's why we made some key acquisitions with our organizations, because we want to make sure we're bringing more households into our portfolio.
1: So listeners who know me know that I've got a pretty deep experience uh, in panel data and what you're talking about. I'm not trying to go off on a panel data discussion, but I remember when I was working with Wall Street analysts, And and this was a bit of an education because they were very used to point-of-sale data, right, which is a measure, and it's interesting for share and stuff like that. But what we were showing folks is kind of like there's only two ways at some high level to grow a brand, and you just hit on it. You either sell to more households or you sell more to the same households. Those are kind of your two choices. And what you're saying is, yeah, well, we're just trying to extend the user base. Right. Right. Of our products that that's where the win is. And then, as you say, just sort of you know, morally or ethically or whatever, like we're not trying to you know, see how much alcohol we can make one household drink as much as can we share the love across a broader set of households.
0: Right. Expendable consumption, a term with which you're you're very familiar, right? You know, soft drinks, total expendable consumption, you know, soup, there's many expendable consumption. You know, the old joke is the one category it's not expendable consumption is toilet paper, right? Pretty yes. much everything else is expendable consumption. Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't, de- that's not our objective here at Pernod. It's like recruiting more folks into the group. And then the folks that are in it, making sure they stay with our brands and give them every yep. reason to do so.
1: Yeah. And just for listeners who may not be familiar with the term expandable consumption, soup is a great example where that's why they're always giving you recipes on how else you can use cream of mushroom soup or tomato soup or whatever so that you buy more soup because you've got more reasons to buy more soup. Right. Or, you know, uh, in in soft drinks, it might be used as a mixer sometimes or other things where you might have different usage occasions for something. Alcohol, maybe a little less. So, I think that's a really fair point that yeah. you make. So, um, in pre-pop, now you said that. What was the percentage that you said, Chris, of people that already know the brand that they want? So,
0: so um, during twenty twenty, we did some research and the number came up at about sixty percent. Now, that's during COVID, right? We've we've come back and you know. We have a phenomenal insights team. They've gone back and said, okay, what does it look like now? That number is about 48%. So 48% of shoppers, when they walk into a store, know what brand they want to buy. Now, now that doesn't mean they always buy that brand, but, but they've got a pretty good idea. And, and they're pretty much, that's what they're going to do. 48%. Um, it's a pretty high number. That also means that 52% don't know what they want when they walk in. So you know, how do we hit those 48% pre-pop in the right way and then add pop, convert them, and then for those, the more than half that don't know what they want, how do we hit them at pop, right? And so there's, there's several ways. 85% of those folks say they're influenced by a display, but 15% say display is their reason for purchase. So that shows you display is a big thing. That's not mm-hmm. a shocker, right, to those of us in the business. But it's not as big of a thing as maybe many of us had thought, or maybe it's evolving. In fact, 80% of shoppers now say that shelf cues is the number one primary driver, it's a, perhaps, shelf, yeah. a, shelf, a shelf talker, a wobbler, something that's on, something to get your attention at the shelf, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now the shelf, of course, is where most of the brands sit, right? But it's also crowded. How do you stand out there? But if you can sit out at the shelf, most, most decisions by the shopper are made at the shelf, not at the display. They're made at the shelf. How do you win that spot at shelf? Um, and that's one of the things that we really focus on going forward as a team is Yes, we want those displays, but we know retail reality say there's not that much display space, right? So how do you get that display space but in the majority of the times where well, you can't because of, you know, opportunities, how do we win how do we win the shelf?
1: So speaking of the shelf, um, not that I've got extensive experience in the liquor store, but my observation is is like maybe this is where the term top shelf comes from, but like like premium is higher and a kind of middle tier And then the the cheap stuff is at the bottom. Yes. Uh, And and then sometimes it gets a little linear. So left to right, it might be like in ascending order. Yes. How do you guys think about that? How do you recommend?
0: Yes. So so it's really that that's a a, um, meant to be a kind of a shopper guide, if you will. So like, if you think of it intuitively and you're walking in now, and now remember we're trying to make it easier for the shopper to find what they're looking for. Right. Yeah. And, and when you walk in, especially if you're new to the category, it's overwhelming. It's like, oh my God, where do I even start? Right. So, Oh, okay. I can do the math here. They're going down the shelves as they go down in price or they are going left to right. Like that's, that's, it's a shopper queue was the intentionality. The other fact is, is if you're a retailer, do you want to sell, you know, the least expensive stuff, less? Yeah. So then you're going to probably put that at the, at the bottom shelf. Mm-hmm. So it depends on, on who you're talking to as far as the original driver was of that merchandising technique. But that's, there's two benefits to that. It's, it's you can sell more higher margin, higher revenue items. If you're at the eye level or at the top, than you do for lower revenue at the bottom. Um, and then you make it easier for the shopper to find what they want. So mm-hmm. we believe in, in grouping things, you know, that way and, and, and buy subcategory. So the biggest thing is, is you know, if you, if you, in a deal world we'd have all Pernod Ricard products together, right. From a merchandising standpoint, the distributors go in there. They're the ones that are, are merchandising for us. It's nice and easy. It's tight from a, from an efficiency standpoint, but that doesn't make any sense for the shopper. If you have an absolute vodka sitting right next to Jefferson's, it doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. So you put the bourbons together, you put the vodkas together. Sure. Then once you get within that subcategory. Okay. How do I navigate this thing? Oh, I navigate it by price. And sometimes that's usurped by having the big hitters at eye level. Sometimes they just say, okay, no matter what the price is, put that at the eye level.